Welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. My name, your reader, is Doug Kretzinger. And our first story today, front page, <clears throat> picture of Governor Reynolds uh, giving the annual condition of the state address at the state capitol on Tuesday in Des Moines. And it's written, it says, she wants to reduce income tax rate to 3.5% by next year, written by Tom Barton and Caleb McCullough, Courier, Des Moines Bureau. Governor Kim Reynolds used her seventh condition of the state speech Tuesday to call for accelerated income tax cuts and to express grief over last week's deadly shooting, school shooting in Perry, and her gratitude for law enforcement and school officials who responded to it. The Republican governor, in her annual address to a joint session of the Iowa House and Senate, also outlined plans to increase teacher pay, reform the state's area education agencies that serve children with disabilities, and create a network of nonprofits to connect Iowans in need with assistance. Reynolds began her address by acknowledging the shooting Thursday at Perry High School that killed 11-year-old Amur Jalif, a sixth grader, and injured seven students and school staff. The 17-year-old shooter, a student there, killed himself. Our hearts are still heavy, and our prayers continue for the victims and their families and for the entire Perry community, Reynolds said. The senselessness of it shakes us to our very core. Yet even in the darkest hour, light and hope break through. That was certainly the case on that day, she said. Principal Dan Marburger tried to calm down the shooter and distract him to students so students could flee, according to his daughter and law enforcement. He was critically injured, sustaining multiple gunshot wounds at close range. His unflinching bravery saved lives that morning. Dan is a hero, and we pray that he's soon back where he belongs, with the students who are so lucky to have him, Reynolds said. She also acknowledged the courageous actions of the local law enforcement officers, first responders, and state and federal agents who responded to the shooting. Reynolds and lawmakers took a moment of silence to honor those affected by the shooting, and also an Algona police officer and Ionia firefighter who died in the line of duty last year. Reynolds did not propose any new firearm restrictions in re reaction to the shooting. Speaking after the address, Democratic House and Senate leaders said she and Republicans should address firearm access and broader gun violence issues in the wake of the shooting. One of the best ways to honor the community of Perry, who just endured this shooting, is to come up with policies that will make it so there's not another school shooting, said Iowa House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst, Democrat Windsor Heights. Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican of New Hartford, noted several of the governor's proposals received bipartisan applause, including proposals to raise teacher pay, expand workplace learning opportunities, and extend postpartum Medicaid coverage. I think we've seen from this governor that she has a willingness to take on difficult issues and have bold agendas and lay those out, Grassley said, and I think she did that again tonight. And quite frankly, on several of the issues seeing all legislators rise, I think shows that the governor really laid out an agenda that there's going to be interest from both parties to want to have those conversations. 
Reynolds' priorities for the year includes accelerating income tax cuts passed in 2022 that started to take effect this year. The law would gradually reduce personal income taxes to a flat 3.9% in 2026. Reynolds' proposal would expedite that transition. Most working Iowans would pay a 3.65% state income tax on their 2024 wages and 3.5% in 2025. The proposal would reduce state income taxes and limit future state revenue growth by $3.8 billion over the first uh, five years. Republicans say the state can afford more tax reductions, with a $2.1 billion general fund budget surplus projected to grow to $3.1 billion in the next fiscal year, full emergency accounts, and $3.7 billion in the taxpayer relief fund. Let me be absolutely clear. The surplus does not mean that we aren't spending enough. It means we're still taking too much of Iowa's hard-earned money, Reynolds said. The governor also called for lowering taxes businesses pay pay to fund benefits for unemployed workers. Under her proposal, Iowa employers would pay a maximum rate of 5.4% on wages up to $18,000 per employee, as opposed to the current 7% on wages up to $36,000 per employee. Reynolds' office estimates that will save Iowa employers more than $800 million over five years. We turned our unemployment system into a re-employment system, and it's having the intended effect, Reynolds said. After Reynolds' address, House and Senate Democratic leaders said they were concerned that further income tax cuts would disproportionately benefit the wealthy while leaving hundreds of thousands of Iowans who pay no income taxes with no benefits. The people who have been the biggest beneficiaries of this tax cut that's currently in place are those who are earning more than a million dollars a year, Iowa Senate Minority Leader Pam Yoakum, Democrat Dubuque, said. Reynolds also was asking the legislature to invest $96 million dollars in new money to increase starting teacher pay by 50% to $50,000 and to set a minimum salary of $62,000 for teachers with at least 12 years of experience. In addition, her proposed budget includes $10 million for a merit-based grant program to reward teachers who have gone above and beyond to help their students succeed. Reynolds also called for reforming the state's nine regional area education agencies created in the 70s to provide special education support for school districts, arguing they operate without meaningful oversight. Over the last year, in dozens of conversations with parents, teachers, school administrators, and AEA staff, it's become clear that while some of our AEAs are doing great work, others are underperforming, Reynolds said. We have superintendents who won't use their services, but are still required to pay for them and AEAs have grown well beyond their core mission of helping students with disabilities, creating top-heavy organizations with high administrative expenses, she said. Instead of, funding f- instead of funding funneling through the school districts to their AEA, the districts would be given the option under her proposal to keep that funding and allocate it for special education services as they choose at an AEA or a private company. Under her proposal, 
AEAs would focus solely on students with disabilities and independent oversight would move to the State Department of Education. It would eliminate property taxes that are collected to support AEA functions that are not related to special education. The governor's staff has projected that would be an impact of $68 million in fiscal 2025. In the last five years, Iowa students with disabilities have ranked 30th or worse on 9 of 12 national assessments, while Iowa spends over $5,300 more per pupil on special education than the national average. Reynolds also said she would work to increase reading outcomes for elementary students and train teachers in a science of reading program, an evidence-based literacy program. Her proposal would also require the state to create personalized reading programs for every child who is not proficient in reading in first through third grade. Parents would have the option to retain children in third grade if they are not teaching literacy standards. Mike Baranek, president of the Iowa State Education Association, the union representing Iowa's public school teachers, called Reynolds' proposal to to raise teacher pay long overdue. We are optimistic that this promise will turn into action for all the employees in our public schools, some of whom work with the most vulnerable students and are still only making just $9 per hour, uh, Baranek said in a statement. We hope this is not an empty campaign promise, but will generally mean that she wish she values recruiting and retaining public educators, community college instructors, and the professionals serving in our education agencies. Buranek also called on lawmakers to discuss real solutions to addressing gun violence in the wake of last week's school shooting. ISEA also called for continued support of area education agencies, which, along with school staff and law enforcement, jumped into action to help with grief and counseling services. Our public schools need more resources to help foster positive and inclusive school climates. They don't need weapons and fewer education professionals in the buildings, Bernick said. Democrats said they were skeptical of Reynolds' proposal to overhaul the AEAs and that they want to see more details of that plan. Jochum, who said her late daughter received services from an AEA for a disability, said she was concerned it could disproportionately affect rural areas. I know a lot of families with special needs children are so dependent on those services, she said. It sounds like we're beginning to privatize even the area education agencies. Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer, Republican from Grimes, said the proposal would allow schools more flexibility to provide special education services in ways that work best for them. As far as looking at things like the AEA, that have never really been reviewed, and taking a look at it from a state government perspective is something that we want to do, Whitford said. Uh, Reynolds called for increasing the coverage of postpartum care for new moms under Medicaid from two months to 12 months. Iowa is one of only a handful of states that has not implemented the, uh, the extension, which was made available to states in the American Rescue Plan Act. To accomplish this, Reynolds' office said she would propose decreasing the eligibility for Medicaid coverage of birth and postpartum care to 215% of the federal poverty line from 375% under current law. While the benefits would be extended, 
the changes would make it harder to qualify for them, keeping Medicaid costs for pregnancy and postpartum care neutral. Under the new proposal, a single pregnant woman making less than $42,000 a year would have her pregnancy and 12 months of postpartum care covered under Medicaid. Reynolds tied the initiative to Republicans' passage of a strict abortion ban last year. Now blocked in court, that uh, banned abortion when a fetal heartbeat can be detected as early as six weeks. Reynolds said government assistance is critical for families working to get back on their feet, but should be a temporary aid on the road to self-sufficiency. To further that goal, she proposed a program to connect Iowans in need with faith-based organizations and the private sector and steer them away from government assistance. The program is modeled after Hope Florida, a program spearheaded by Florida First Lady Casey DeSantis, the wife of Governor Ron DeSantis. Reynolds has endorsed the Florida governor for his campaign for president. Whatever the challenge, Thrive Iowa will be there with dedicated navigators to help Iowans find their way to lasting independence, Reynolds said, and countless lives will surely change for the better. Reynolds will reintroduce proposals to allow birth control to be dispensed by a pharmacist without a prescription and expand paid family leave for state employees, her office said. Reynolds' office also said she would introduce legislation to require age verification for online pornography websites, similar to laws in Utah and Texas. Proposals to extend postpartum Medicaid and private behind uh, and provide behind the county birth control have previously stalled in the House. Reynolds will propose a bill to cut and consolidate. Uh, 111 of Iowa's boards and commissions, continuation of her move last year to reorganize and reduce the size of state government. The proposal comes after a state panel created in last year's realignment law met to recommend changes to the state panels. Reynolds' proposal is in line with the committee's recommendations, she said during the address. Reynolds also proposed strengthening the state's laws regarding foreign ownership of farmland, her proposal would strengthen mandatory landowner reporting requirements and grant the Iowa Attorney General subpoena power to provide more transparency on what farmland is under foreign ownership. Her proposal would also increase financial penalties for failure to report to the Iowa Secretary of State or false reporting. In an uneasy nation, Iowa stands out as a mixed, rather as a fixed point of prosperity and stability, Reynolds said in closing. As a reminder that remarkable people can always be trusted to build remarkable things. It's because of them, because of Iowans, that the condition of our state is truly strong and our future is truly bright. Mason City Fire Department celebrates retirement of two longtime captains, written by Robin McClelland of the Globe Gazette. Two captains of the Mason City Fire Department were honored last week in a ceremony celebrating their retirements. Steve Bull and Dave Orr were presented with plaques commemorating their years of service. Chief Eric Bullinger spoke during the ceremony Friday as the MCFD Honor Guard stood watch. Bullinger praised the dedication both men showed to their community as well as the fire department. Bull joined the department in 1992. He says in his 31 years of service to Mason City, there was never a day he didn't want to come to work. I had plenty 
I wanted to go home from, though, he said with a wry grin. Orr joined the team in 1995, spending 28 years with the department. It's absolutely been my pleasure to serve the people of Mason City for all this time, Orr said. In the 90s, emergency medical services were still being provided by Snell's Ambulance Service. When the city restructured the fire department to include emergency medical services, firefighters found themselves with new responsibilities on their plates. And back then, you could work a full three-day trick without ever going on a call, said Bull. Now there are 15 to 16 medical calls per day. With the changes over the decades, the two men worked hard to learn, train, and become better paramedics and firefighters. Bullinger praised both men for their steadfast dedication to the department and their efforts to build a strong team as new firefighters and paramedics joined the crew. A good officer is like a thermostat, said Bullinger, able to keep cool and adjust to any situation. Bullinger emphasized that captains are the first to make critical decisions when a call is received. He also noted the responsibilities the men shoulders, shouldered as they stepped up to leadership positions. Captains respond first. It's not until much later that the chief is on scene, Bullinger said. Their leadership and decision-making is crucial, and these are two that can be counted on. Bull, 2nd Battalion Captain, is looking forward to retirement. My wife and I produce wedgies for vegetable boxes. We have sheep and a little farm to take care of, Bull said. Orr was charged with the 3rd Battalion and plans to use his retirement to enjoy outdoors and fishing. Here's some local briefs. Coob announces run for CG Sheriff. Former Saragordo County Sheriff's Deputy Brian Coob announced in a press release his intent to run for Saragordo County Sheriff. The office currently held by Kelvin Powell's will be vacated when Powell's retires at the end of 2024. Coob, a Democrat, noted his nearly 20 years' experience in law enforcement as well as his roles as a deputy, volunteer firefighter, dispatcher, jailer, and vehicle enforcement officer and state trooper. My service was all or has always been about putting others first, those I have served and worked alongside, from citizens to co-workers, would tell you that my goal has always been the best possible outcome, Coob said in a statement. As sheriff, I plan to continue in service to the public with integrity and honor as a leader in law enforcement, working with the citizens of Cerro Gordo County is a privilege that I would be honored to maintain in the capacity of sheriff. As sheriff, my priorities will be supporting all divisions of the sheriff's office, maintaining safety for all citizens, and creating strong partnerships between communities and law enforcement throughout the entire county. Coob directs voters to his Facebook page, Coob for Sheriff. And here's a, a story on... Uh, Clunder, or Clunder, announces run for sheriff. The Clunder for Sheriff Committee announced in a press release the intent of Saragordo County Sheriff's Office, Lieutenant Matt Clunder, to run for sheriff. The office currently held by Saragordo County Sheriff Kevin Powell's will be up for grabs as Powell's is set to retire at the end of the year. And Clunder 48 works his way up through the ranks in the office uh, sheriff's office, beginning as a jailer in 1998 moving into role of deputy by 2002. In 2004, Clunder began working for the 
Sheriff's Office is a full-time narcotics investigator at the North Central Iowa Narcotics Task Force. During his time on the Narcotics Task Force, he was sworn as a special federal officer for the FBI. He worked closely with state prosecutors in the United States Attorney's Office while investigating many high-profile drug cases. Clunder was promoted by PALS in 2012 to the rank lieutenant, where he currently serves as the Sheriff's Office Night Shift Patrol Supervisor, the press release states. Voters are asked to visit Clunder's Facebook page, Matt Clunder for Saragoto County Sheriff. More local news. Mason City man is facing numerous charges after a single car crash. Trial date has been set for a North Iowa man facing a many charges stemming from a December car crash. Lance Michael Kohler, 45, of Mason City, is charged with felony counts of a controlled substance violation, failure to affix tax stamp, and control of a firearm by a felon, as well as a misdemeanor counts of personal ineligible to carry dangerous weapons, carrying a dangerous weapon while under the influence and operating under the influence first offense. According to court documents, officers arrived at the scene of a single-car crash near Dogwood Avenue and 210th Street in Saragota County around 4 p.m. December 5. Kohler's vehicle apparently had inside it a loaded 380 Remington pistol and many hyperdermic needles. Kohler reportedly also had 24.6 grams of meth on his person, Officer said Kohler admitted to using meth at 2 a.m. earlier in the day. Kohler had submitted a written plea of not guilty January 8. Trial is scheduled for 1.30 p.m. February 27 at the Saragordo County Courthouse. And trial set for Mason City woman accused of stealing from her employer. A Mason City woman facing up to 10 years in prison after being accused of stealing more than $15,000 via fraudulent lottery transactions while employed at Casey's General Store with stand trial in February. According to court records, 54-year-old Christine Sue Luna made the unspecified transaction while working at the Casey store at 2701 19th Street, southwest in Mason City, from May 1 until November 17. She was arrested on a warrant November 24 and charged with felony first-degree theft over $10,000 as a habitual felony offender. Luna's habitual offender status stems from a string of theft and forgery convictions dating back to the late 80s. Luna pleaded not guilty in court January 8, and a trial date has been set for 1.30 p.m. Tuesday, February 27, the Cerro Goto County Courthouse in Mason City. We have a couple obituaries today. Joan Anderson Watson of Mason City, 93 years old, passed peacefully away Sunday, January 7, at the Good Shepherd Health Center, surrounded by her family. A private family celebration of life will be held for Joan, along with husband Bob, in the spring. Online condolences may be left for the family at uh, MajorEricksonFuneralHome.com, M-A-J-O-R-E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N, FuneralHome.com. Joan was born July 28, 1930, in Clarksville, Iowa, to Elmer and Mildred Spencer Anderson, as a child growing up with two younger sisters, her family moved to various cities due to the Depression. From Clarksville, they moved to Waterloo, Iowa, Chicago, Illinois, San Luis Obispo, Obispo uh, California, Phoenix, Arizona, until her graduation from Mason City, Iowa. And that's where she met Bob Watson at the First Methodist Youth Fellowship Group. They were married August 11, 1951. And Joan was preceded in death by her husband, Bob, her parents and brother-in-law, Anthony, who? Pantonis, P-A-P-A-N-T-O-N-I-S, Pantonis, 
We as a family wish to thank everyone who has been part of Joan's life and have given in her the love, support, and friendship over her lifetime. Special thank you to Good Shepherd and Mercy One Hospice for the loving care they gave to her and our family. She had a smile for everyone. She will be deeply missed, but we hold her memory and her love close in our hearts. Arrangements are with Major Erickson Funeral Home and Crematory, uh, 111 North Pennsylvania Avenue in Mason City. And uh, Francis Blick Young, uh, 93, of Garner, died Sunday, January 7, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. A funeral mass will be held 10.30 a.m. Friday the 12th, 2024, at St. Boniface Catholic Church in Garner. Arrangements uh, by CataldoFuneralHome.com. Moving into a little sports news here. Here's what you can, uh, what is on, on 6 p.m. CBS SN. Hofstra is at Northeastern. This is college basketball for the men. Uh, FAU at Tulane. ESPN 2. This is 6 p.m. ESPN U. Uh, UMBC at Vermont. And FS1. Michigan is at Maryland. Then at 8 o'clock. Uh, CBSN, Louisiana Tech, is at Middle Tennessee State. ESPN2 has UCLA at Utah. This is all 8 p.m. time. ESPNU is Radford at Longwood. FS1 has Michigan State at Illinois. 8.30 ESPN, you have Gangaza at Santa Clara. 10 p.m. ESPN2, Stanford at Oregon State. ESPNU, Portland is at St. Mary's Cal. And FS1 is Arizona State at Washington. Into the men, uh, the women's at 5 p.m. Uh, you can go in ACCN. Louisville is at Pittsburgh. BTN, you'll find Rutgers at Ohio State. And 6 o'clock, you'll find Florida at Tennessee on SECN. That's women's college basketball. And at 7 p.m., Miami's at Virginia Tech, ACCN. And Illinois is at Nebraska on BTN. 8 p.m., you'll find Mississippi State at Arkansas, S-E-C-N. And let's see what else we got here. Let's see. That's about it, I think. Here's a story on the sports section. Four City Knights of Columbus free throw contest slated for January 22. Uh, The Knights of Columbus Council 7896 annual free throw contest slated for January 22nd. The council includes members from St. Patrick's in Lake Mills, St. James in Forest City, and St. Patrick's in Buffalo Center. All boys and girls ages 9 to 14 are invited to participate in the local level of competition at 1 p.m. at the Forest City Civic Auditorium. The Knights of Columbus Free Throw Championship is sponsored annually with winners progressing through local, district, and state competitions. Proof of age is required. Age eligibility is determined by the age of the uh, contestant as of January 1. And warm-ups begin at 12.30 p.m., and contestants are asked to bring clean gym shoes for the contest. All contestants on the local level are recognized for their participation in the event. Participation is free, and entry forms are available at the Forest City Parks and Recreation Office or at the event. For additional information, you can contact Chad Reese at 641-590-1515. Here's a little look at... uh, Mason City's five-day forecast. Uh, today, clouds and sun, wind, 7 to 14 miles per hour, 17 degrees going to be. Tonight, look for breezy with snow, 1 to 3 inches. 
And there will be some wind, 12 to 25 miles per hour with 11 degrees. The low, uh, windy and snow on Friday, 1 to 3 inches. Wind up to 20 to 30 miles per hour, high of 13, low of 2 degrees, getting cooler now. And on Saturday, look for flurries, windy and frigid. Wind is up to 25 to 35 miles per hour, 4 degrees high and a minus 15 low. Saturday is cold, frigid, breezy in the a.m., wind uh, 12 to 25 miles per hour, minus 7 degrees, 16 is the high, 16 degrees is the low, and Monday it's about the same. So uh, the, the cool weather has definitely arrived. So you are listening to this um, Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger on I- IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we're going to turn to the Fort Dodge Messenger. And on the front page here, it's got uh, headline is on the debate stage, DeSantis and Haley jockey for second without Trump. And dateline is Des Moines. There were only two Republicans on the presidential debate stage Wednesday as former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis met for the highest stake face-off yet, just five days before the nominating process formally starts with the Iowa caucuses. Haley and DeSantis sprinted a spirited debate came at the shadow of a live town hall held by the man who is dominating the primary contest, Donald Trump. The former president, of course, has stayed away from all five debates, holding a rival town hall Wednesday on Fox News, the one Republican candidate whose entire campaign has been based around stopping Trump. Former New York uh, Jersey governor Chris Christie suspended his campaign just hours before the debate. Christie wasn't scheduled to be on the stage anyway, as the field was whittled down to the only two candidates who are battling for a very distant second to Trump. And so... Here are the early takeaways from the event. In the fight for second, ever since debates began in August, Trump's absence has created a a real sense. Politicians badly trailing in the polls, talking about what they'll do when they win the presidency. On Wednesday, at least it was painfully clear that the remaining contenders in the Republican primary are fighting for second place. The opening question was why each of the two candidates thought they were the best option for voters who didn't want to support Trump. And that set the stakes squarely about second place, and the candidates snapped to it. Haley opened the debate by touting a new website to track DeSantis. Lies. DeSantis countered, We don't need another mealy-mouthed politician who just tells you what she thinks you want to hear, just so she can get into office and do her, her donor's bidding. The sharpest exchange came after Haley continued to needle DeSantis on how he ran his campaign, saying it showed he couldn't be trusted to run the country if he could spend $150 million and have so much internal chaos and stagnant polling. When the Florida governor tried to interrupt her, Haley said, I think I hit a nerve. DeSantis dismissed Haley's criticism as, process stuff that voters don't care about and bragged about his conservative record in Florida while jabbing her for failing to pass school choice as governor. It went on and on like that. 
with the two candidates constantly uh, jabbing each other. They made swipes at Trump, but uh, but spent the overwhelming amount of time on the person standing on the podium next to them. The political rationale is clear. Trump is 77 years old and faces four separate sets of criminal charges, plus a bid to disqualify him from being president that is currently at the U.S. Supreme Court. Anything can happen, and if it does, you'd rather be the runner-up than in third or lower. Plus, maybe Trump reaches down and picks his running mate from the top of the two of the also-runs. Well, Trump campaign has already quipped that the debates are actually vice presidential debates and during his Fox News town hall, suggested he already knew who his pick would be. As has been the case, Wednesday's debate didn't seem likely to change the overall trajectory of the race with Trump dominating. But at least there were some stakes. By staying physically off stage, Trump has largely avoided being attacked in the debates. It's Tricky to criticize a man beloved by most of Republican voters, and for the most part, the contenders haven't bothered. But that's been slowly changing, and continued to Wednesday. DeSantis opened with what's become his standard campaign soundbite that claims that Trump is only interested in his issues, and DeSantis cares about your issue, and DeSantis cares about your issues. Haley quickly criticized the former president for piling onto the federal deficit not being strong enough against China, uh, and failing to end illegal immigration. From the front page, Berry Hill Center may join efforts to improve care. Is the heading, Better Program Outcomes Are Sought, written by Bill Shea. Uh, and it says, The Unity Point Health, Berry Hill Center, is poised, posed to become part of a federal demonstration project intended to improve programming and outcomes for Iowans needing mental health care. Unity Point Health announced Wednesday that the Fort Dodge facility is among 11 in Iowa deemed eligible to become state-certified community behavioral health clinics as part of an application to become a Medicaid demonstration program. Federal approval would increase funding and streamline services available across the state. This allows us to enhance and pro our programming and have more community partnerships, said Jennifer Pollan, who is the executive director of the Berry Hill Center. I'm sorry. This allows us to be more collaborative. She said the initiative really helps to support more standardized quality programming that is more consistent across the state for Iowans needing behavioral health care. The Berry Hill Center already has certified community behavioral health clinic status through the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Unity Point Health continues to work proactively to improve the health of individuals suffering from complex physical and mental illnesses. Aaron McHone, Behavioral Health Center Health Service Line Operations Director for Unity Point Health, said in a written statement. We are thrilled to partner with the state of Iowa and Medicaid in creating a more sustainable behavioral health care system statewide, he added. Here's a story on page 5. <clears throat> Record-breaking cold threatens to complicate Iowa's lead-off caucuses as snowy weather cancels events. And Dateline is Waukee. Snow was still piling up on top of the 8 inches that had already accumulated when Katie Miller trekked out to see Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley in Waukee. There were moments on the drive up here I was like, 
What are we doing? Melder said about her seven-mile drive from Adel on Tuesday. The reason we drove up here is to really see who she is. Miller isn't sure who she'll vote for in Iowa's lead-off caucuses on January 15, but she's sure she'll be there, despite a frigid slap-you-in-the-face cold night in the forecast. It's important. It's kind of our duty, right? said Miller, a 49-year-old human resources worker. So that's what we have to do. Iowa Republicans will likely confront temperatures dipping below zero degrees Fahrenheit when they kick off the 2024 election cycle, a record-breaking forecast that might complicate candidates' hopes of making their own history if the cold depresses voter turnout. The candidates are publicly expressing optimism that their supporters will show up no matter how bad the weather is. But the havoc on the candidates' uh, schedules, thwarting their plans to crisscross uh, Iowa and make their final pitches to voters. Donald Trump's campaign had to cancel events featuring surrogates advocating for the former president, including Mike Huckabee and Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Mike Huckabee, who won the caucuses in 2008, posted on social media that the expected snowstorm grounded their plane. Biotech and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy said his car got stuck in a ditch while driving in snowy weather Monday night to Des Moines from northwest Iowa. Ramaswamy canceled this his event Tuesday morning, saying it was effectively impossible to safely get from Des Moines to Coralville, hours after criticizing Haley for calling off her Monday event in Sioux City. National Weather Service data shows there has never been a colder Iowa caucus night than what's forecast for January 15. The previous coldest was in 2004, when the high temperatures for that year's January 19 caucuses was 16 degrees. We may not warm uh, above zero degrees on Monday, said Des Moines-based meteorologist Chad Hahn. I would not be surprised if we don't get above minus 20 degrees for wind chills beginning on Sunday. Temperatures will continue to drop through the rest of this week, Hahn said. Highs will be in the upper 20s Wednesday, low 20s on Thursday and Friday, 10 on Saturday and single digits on Sunday. Worse, of course, with wind chills. The frigid feels like the, the frigid feels like may make it hardest for GOP candidates to turn out their supporters, already a tall order with the demands of a caucus. Unlike a primary election where voters can cast their ballot throughout the day, CASA scores have up have to show up at a specific time and location that's likely not their typical polling place. No snow, rain or sleet is expected Monday, and snow and snow tends to be less likely with temperatures at low, said Hallen. A burning, a barring, a major ice storm, Republican Party of Iowa Chairman Jeff Kaufman said, Iowans won't be dissuaded by low temperatures. It's going to go on, no matter what, Kaufman predicted. Brad Remsburg, 51, ventured from West Des Moines to see Haley on Tuesday morning despite a snowstorm and temperatures hovering around freezing. He said he wouldn't let her let the weather stop him or his son from participating in next week's caucuses. Well, yeah, it's cold, his 23-year-old son Jake, a recent Iowa State graduate, acknowledged. He said he would put on a coat to combat any frigid caucus temperatures. You can see he didn't even wear one today, his father pointed out. It could be dangerous for people to be outside for extended periods of time in temperatures as low as what's being forecast, Han said. Exposed skin would quickly be at risk of frostbite. The Iowa GOP says caucus sites were 
chosen with convenience and comfort in mind, including taking into account where people would have to wait to register or to sign in. They do not anticipate many voters having to wait in the line outside. But voters may very well be in lines outside before Monday. Trump will be heading for or headlining four rallies across Iowa on Saturday and Sunday. Supporters in recent weeks have spent several hours waiting outside in line before the doors have opened at his rallies and ahead of security screening. Trump's campaign promise to ensure people are well taken care of this weekend and that people are able to get inside venues in a quick and quarterly fashion. When the high was 34 degrees in Sioux Center last week, Trump joked about his chilly walk from the car while complimenting while comp, uh, complimenting his hearty supporters for waiting in line, some for four hours. That's cold out there. That's a long wait, right? Trump said. I said, uh, where's my coat? A little national story here. Secrecy surrounding the defense secretary's hospitalization has put the White House on the defensive. The dateline is Washington, D.C., President Joe Biden's administration pledged from day one to restore truth and transparency to the federal government, but now it's facing a maelstrom maelstrom of criticism and credibility questions after Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's hospitalization was kept secret for days, even from the White House. The controversy has prompted a government-wide review of what protocols are in place to prevent such failures, and the Pentagon is scrutinizing its own procedures following the extraordinary lapse, which left even Austin's top deputies unaware of his condition for days. Senior congressional Republicans are investigating whether Austin ignored legal requirements to inform Congress and Biden administration officials are privately fuming about Austin's lack of disclosure, believing it to be an unforced error that undercuts the president's message of restoring competency through his administration. The prolonged focus on a senior official's medical secrecy is also shedding an unwelcome spotlight on Biden's own health, which already was under scrutiny as the oldest president in history seeks another term and faces regular questions and concerns from voters about his age. Combined, the questions over transparency and health have put the White House on the defensive for days as the election year opens and have given ammunition to Biden uh, polar uh, political opponents who question whether his Democratic administration is living up to its pledges of competency. The Pentagon disclosed Tuesday afternoon, after days of silence on Austin's medical diagnosis, that the secretary has prostate cancer. Austin, 70 years old, was admitted to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center on December 22 and underwent surgery to treat uh, the disease, but developed a urinary tract infection a week later and was admitted into uh, intensive care. He remained hospitalized Wednesday. Austin was diagnosed with prostate uh, cancer during um, a routine screening in early December but the White House insisted that no one there, including Biden, knew about the diagnosis until Tuesday. I think we'll all recognize, and I think the Pentagon has been very, very honest with themselves about the challenge to credibility by what has transpired here, and by now, and by how hard it was for them to be fully transparent with the American people, said uh, John Kirby, spokesman for the National Security Council. We all recognize that this didn't unfold the way it should have on so many levels, he said. There is, 
no government-wide policy in the Biden administration on how absences, absences of cabinet officials should be handled, according to people familiar with the matter. Although there is a general in, uh, expectation that the White House should be made aware of such circumstances, the people spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss government practices. While there is no uh, statutory requirement for public officials to disclose their medical histories, it has become common practice for presidential and vice presidential candidates and incumbents to do so. Many choose to share more about their health than a private citizen would. Other top figures, though, have opted to remain cagey about their health, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell after recent incidents in which he froze up and the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who delayed revealing the recurrence of, pan, pan, the recurrence of pancreatic cancer or the seriousness of her condition before her death, weeks ahead of the 2020 presidential election. Disclosures to the public about a cabinet official's absence have varied between federal agencies. For instance, the Justice Department in 2022 announced that Attorney General Merrick Garland would undergo a surgery to remove enlarged prostate tissue a week in advance of his procedure. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg cleared his parental leave with the White House after he and his husband opted adopted twins in 2021, but the leave was not disclosed publicly until he had returned to work. Multiple current and former officials said White Houses generally aim to keep closer tabs on the whereabouts of the Secretaries of State and uh, Defense due to their uh, prominent positions in the line of presidential succession, and particularly in the case of the Pentagon. Cedric Leighton, a retired U.S. Air Force colonel, noted that the chain of command for the six for the U.S. military runs from the president through his defense secretary to the combatant commanders, who then execute orders that could include command and control of any potential use of nuclear weapons. He said it was imperative that the president, top administration, and military officials, select members of Congress, and even key allied counterparts be notified of even a temporary absence. It is highly unusual for any cabinet secretary not to notify the president, the White House chief of staff, or the NSC of any absence, especially a medical one, he added. White House chief of staff Jeff Zaints, in a Tuesday memo to cabinet secretaries directed them to report back by Friday on any existing procedures for delegating authority in the event of incapacitation or loss of communication. He also was requiring agencies to provide notice if an agency expects a circumstance in which a cabinet leader can't perform his duties. Time for the obituaries today. We have just a few here today. Here's one on Robert Caldwell. Uh, of Maryland, or MD. He passed away on January 6, age of uh, 87, born February 12, 1936, in Fort Dodge, to William E. and Gladys F. Uh, Chevalier Cadwell, C-A-D-W-E-L-L. Sorry about that. He married his high school sweetheart, Lucille Lucy Halligan, in 1962, Bob received his degree in mechanical engineering from Iowa State University and his medical degree from the University of Iowa and moved to Wausau in 1967, joining the Wausau Medical Center. Later, he 
later helped start Wausau Family Physicians specializing in family medicine, ultimately serving as director of the Family Physician Residency Program until retirement. Bob was highly active and enjoyed years of camping, alpine and cross-country skiing, fishing, canoeing, tennis, golf, sailing, including active leadership in various volunteer programs. Funeral Mass will be celebrated at Resurrection Catholic Church, 621 North 2nd Street, Wausau, at 11 a.m. Saturday, January 13, preceded by a visitation of 9 to 11 a.m. In lieu of flowers, family re- uh, request, memorials be sent to Good News uh, Project, Family Physicians Residency Program, Church of the Resurrection, or Helping Hands. Brainerd Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. Please visit uh, BrainerdFuneralHome.com for full obituary. Lynette Van Atter, Webster City. Ja- uh, visitation will be Saturday, January 13, from 10 to 10.45, followed by Memorial at 11 at Anchor Point Church in Webster City. Bowman Funeral Home is handling those services. Here's uh, Gordon Mooney, Sac City. Funeral services are going to be at 9.30 a.m., Thursday the 11th, that is today, that was today, or is today, 2024 at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Sac City, F-A-R-B-E-R-O-T-T-E-M-A-N.com if you want more information on the funeral. Anita Douglas, Anita L. Douglas, A Celebration of Life, Wednesday the 17th of January at 4 p.m. at Lighthouse Ministries. Visitation will be Wednesday, 2 to 4 p.m. at Lawfers Weiler Funeral Home. Pat Schultz, Eagle Grove. Visitation is Saturday, January 13, 1 to 3 p.m. at uh, Faust Funeral Home, Eagle Grove. Eagle Grove, and that is F-O-U-S-T-H-T-F-H dot com. In the sports section, headline, Dodgers to Honor Senior Wrestlers, bit written by Chris Johnson. Five Fort Dodge seniors will be honored in the Dodger Wrestling Team's final regular season home action of 2024. The number two, the number two Dodgers will host Ames in a double duel with the Fort Dodge Girls Wrestling Squad on Thursday, and junior varsity action will begin with approximately 11 matches on two mats at 5.30 p.m. The FDSH boys and girls seniors will be honored in between JV and varsity action. Fort Dodge will also honor a longtime wrestling fixture, Mike Ryle, as he will be presented his Hall of Fame award in front of the Dodger faithful. Varsity action will begin, let's see, it will begin at approximately 6 p.m. on both mats with the girls and the boys. The four Dodger seniors have a combined eight state appearances, earning several medals, Drew, Ayala, Kane, uh, Butrick, Bo Cowell, Cowell, Demarion Ross, and Cal Hartman will all be honored for their four years of commitment. Aiea, 25-1 and one record at 120 pounds, is a two-time state runner-up and three-time medalist. He currently sits eighth on the Dodgers' all-time win list with a career mark of 135-13. Drew has been, or has big goals to get on top of the podium, said FDSH, Head coach Bobby Thompson, he has been in the finals twice and barely missed his freshman year. Drew has done a lot to continue the legacy of Fort Dodge wrestling. Butrick, 20-5 and five at 132, won 29 matches a year ago, qualified for Des Moines as well. 
Kane is a returning state qualifier and barely missed making it his sophomore year, Thompson said. He is working hard to keep moving up. Cowell, 8-5, and five, is looking for his first state trip. Bo has carried on his brother's Brooks and Lane legacy, Thompson said. His mom and dad are great supporters of the program. He is looking to finish the job and go out strong. He's headed to Iowa State to become an engineer. Ross, 25-3 and three at 175 pounds, is a three-time qualifier with a runner-up and seventh-place showing under his belt. He is 123-33 and 33 in his career and stands in 12th place on the all-time FDSH list for career victories. DeMarion is a three- Time qualifier and is picking up where his brother, Dravon, 112 victories, left off, Thompson said. He is getting the job done. Hartman, 22-7, and seven, at 190, placed 7th at State in 2023 and bouncing back with four straight victories after an early loss at Wells Fargo. <coughs> Cal is the epitome of a team guy. That's why he is a leader and a captain, Thompson said. If you ask his teachers and football coaches, he bleeds red and black. He wears his heart on his sleeve. When February rolls around, he'll be there. We've gotten everything we can out of Cal, and he's giving us everything he has. The Dodgers are coming off a weekend where they won the Jack Mendenhall Invitational in Ames. Fort Dodge prevailed in two of the three head-to-head matchups with the Little Cyclones last Saturday. We had some good matches with them. Thompson said. Uh, Braxton Winky is good at 113, and of course, Jabon Henson at 138, who is the son of Dwight Henson. Jabari, highly regarded in the state. Denary Michael is one of the best in the state at 190. Triton women win. Norfolk, Nebraska. The Iowa Central women move to 5-1 and one away from Hodgefield Fieldhouse. Hodges Fieldhouse here Wednesday night, besting Northeast 70-57. to The Tritons, 12-3 overall, 4-3 in ICCAC, have won three straight to begin the new year. Laney Pilcher scored 25 points. Alicia Haddlestad added 18, and Laney Mayo had 10 to place the strong, pace the scoring. Iowa Central eased an, an early Northeast lead, taking control of the... Iowa Central erased... An early Northeast lead taking control of the contest with a 20-10 and 10 run in the third quarter. This win was crucial as far as the Region 11 standings go. ICCC head coach Sabah Dickerson said, Our conference is so tough and any win you can add to your team is key for postseason tournament seeding. This game was all about roles. We had to make some adjustments at halftime and the team responded well. We felt that everyone really brought in what into what we coaches ask of them and executed at a high level. For the Hawks, Allison Richard had 28, Stephen Fallis, Stevie Fallis, 21. The Tritons return home on Saturday to face fourth-ranked Kirkwood with a 1 p.m. tip. And we'll end the sports section with um, the fact that uh, the note that coaching legend Saban retires Nick Saban's coaching reign has come to an end. His dominance over college football, however, will forever linger in lore. He finished just shy of the top in his final season, leading the tide from a shaky start to a Southeastern Conference championship and back into the college football playoff before 
failing in overtime to Michigan in a semifinal game at the Rose Bowl. So folks, that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, and my name is Doug Kretzinger. I want to thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And have a good day, a safe day, 